And we pray that we will be transformed, that we will not be the same people that we were when we came in today. We need you. And, oh, Lord, only you know how much we need you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I've been preaching throughout the last several weeks, throughout from the beginning of the summer until now, on the subject, the Spirit-filled family life. But today, I, I must be honest with you, I'm going to talk very little about family because we come to an issue of such individual importance that I feel like it is best to stress that. This morning, I'm going to begin talking to you about how to be filled with the Spirit of God. This is a very important subject. If you go back, as I, and read the writings of great men and women a hundred years ago, you will discover that this was a key theme. They were very concerned about being filled with the Spirit of God. But if you look at why they were concerned about being filled with the Spirit of God, you would see one reason, one answer above all others. They wanted the power of the Holy Spirit so that they might do what they called personal work. And by personal work, they meant dealing with those who were unsaved and bringing them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What that generation understood that I'm not really sure anyone completely thoroughly understood in the evangelical church in the 20th century. What they understood was that you, it, you could learn every technique and it wouldn't matter. You could have every kind of emotional gimmick employed and it wouldn't matter. Nothing really impacts people concerning their need for Jesus Christ other than the power of the Holy Spirit. That is why they sought the power of God's Holy Spirit in order that they might be effective in reaching the unsaved with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I see, as I look back, and I try to share with you these historical perspectives because I am so worried and so concerned that in the generation that we live in, we sort of see it as a snapshot in time, and I want us to make sure we understand how our generation is superimposed against the past. But I am concerned when I look back on the 20th century, there were, there were two moves that, in my thinking, only had half of the situation right. In the 50s and 60s and 70s, churches like ours, what we call fundamentalist churches or, or evangelical churches, had a real strong push toward what we called soul winning. And we, we got the importance of the evangelism, what we didn't get was, it's, was the understanding that to be effective with evangelism, we had to have the fullness of the power of God's Holy Spirit. But we developed all kinds of techniques. We had all the four things God wants you to know in this kind of program and that kind of program. As we had soul winning night and all these things. And there were good things that came about. But the problem was, as I look back on it, we were looking at the technique of evangelism without understanding the importance of the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Then, of course, the charismatic churches came along toward the end of the 20th century. And I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but they got the part right about being filled with the Holy Spirit. But the next thing you know, they're all tangled up and speaking in tongues and, and holy laughter. And I'm not painting, not, not everyone in the charismatic movement was involved with these things. But this is what came about. You got people lying in the floor and so-called holy laughter and gales of laughter and speaking in tongues and all that kind of stuff. That's totally irrelevant to the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit. 
And isn't that just like Satan to get the church just one step out of step on both situations? You got people trying to do personal work and evangelism with techniques and zeal, but not the power of God's Holy Spirit. On the other hand, you got people talking about the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit that are going down the wrong track. When I go back a hundred years ago, I don't see either one of those. What I do see, it was the church at probably its most effective point, at least in America, focusing on the necessity for the power of God's Holy Spirit and the filling of God's Holy Spirit with the understanding that we cannot do the personal work that we need to do until we are filled with God's Spirit. Well, I want to remind you of a little history before we get into this. And by the way, my my sermon this morning is entitled, How to Be Filled with the Spirit, and we're going to be focusing on the essentials. Two years ago, I preached a series of messages in the summer that the study for that series transformed my life, and our church has never been the same since that time. I want to take just a moment to remind you of the story. The most difficult year of ministry I've ever had, the most difficult year by far that I ever encountered was the first year that we were out here in the new building. And I can't really put my finger on why it was so difficult, but it was so, so hard that I just got to the place for a while that I was wondering if I was going to even be able to continue here. Not because there was any opposition in the church, not because I was undergoing any criticism. The problem was, as I look back on it, for five or six years, I had so focused on the relocation and the building, I had what I called soul fatigue. And then once we got out here, I was overwhelmed with a sense of what next? Because everything we had ever dreamed of when we were talking about relocating out here had come to pass. We had the building. We didn't have financial difficulty. We were growing. All the things that I had looked forward to were here before me, but I still had a sense of inner dissatisfaction. I remember I'd gone to to Chattanooga, uh, Tennessee to speak for a meeting. And the meeting was over, and I had planned to read a book on the flight home. Now, I, I was sharing with the early service Those of you guys, especially guys, I think ladies are just always organized, but uh, those of you guys who travel, you might be able to, 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 to deal with this or at least understand what I'm saying. Whenever I leave to go on a trip, my luggage is always neatly packed. My wife packs for me, and she folds everything and organizes it. Baby, when I'm going home, I open that thing up and throw it. Wherever it lands, it's in there, and I just, if I can get it shut and get it past the tenant, I'm okay. So that's what I was doing. I was getting ready to leave, and I was just tossing my stuff in my luggage, and I guess I had accidentally tossed the book that I planned to read in my luggage. And I got to the Chattanooga airport, in case any of you have ever been there, you know it's a small regional airport, smaller than our own. I thought, well, I'll go to the bookstore. They have a little small little newsstand bookstore, and I thought, I'll go there and see if there's anything worth reading. Well, and again, you have to understand how tired and fatigued spiritually I was at that moment. I saw U.S. News and World Report, and I thought, boy, there's nothing in there that'll build me up. And then I got USA Today and thumbed through that, and I thought, nah, I don't want to read USA Today. Over in the corner, there was a little stack of books, or, or not stack, but there was a little shelf of books. Uh, and I looked quickly and saw that all the, two things about the books. Number one, they were very inexpensive. I like that part. And secondly, the reason why they were inexpensive is that they were all old and out of copyright. At the bottom of the stack, of the, of the rack, there was a book that I had had recommended to me for years and just never read it. The title of the book was The Person and Work of the Holy Spirit by R.A. Torrey, written in the late 19th century, early 20th century. 
And I bought that book, and I have to tell you, I had two legs of that, that trip home. I had to fly to Cincinnati and then over to Wichita. By the time I got back to Wichita, I was a transformed person. Because what I read in that book set my soul on fire. I came back here to you and preached for, I think, 25 weeks on the, on the Holy Spirit, who He is, what He does, and the filling of the Holy Spirit. God changed my life through that study, and He changed our church. And so, I, by the way, I, in that book, The Person and Work of the Holy Spirit, there are four chapters that I'll never forget. And Tory calls it the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, I would not choose to call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I would call it the filling of the Holy Spirit. But that has a lot to do with the way I was trained and the terminology I was taught to use. And quite frankly, sometimes I get worried when I think about the way I was trained. Because as I look back on the last 75 years of evangelical training for ministers and ministry, I see a lot of energy having been put into preachers and churches to keep them engaged in a pseudo-sophistication so that we will anesthetize ourselves to the pain of not having the power of God that was so prevalent in American Christianity a hundred years ago. It's just a lot of junk that gets taught to preachers today. Busy work is what I used to call it when I was teaching a long time ago. I mean, I remember when I was going to college, there was a pitched warfare between the Calvinists and the Arminians. Well, that's become a real trendy thing in the 20th century, now 21st century. The pseudo-sophistication associated with that. And I can remember going to student union building, there would be pitched battles, pitched debates going on. The Calvinists over here and the Arminians over here. And the Calvinists are saying, God is sovereign. And in His sovereignty, He has decreed everyone who is going to be saved. The Arminians are over here saying, no, there is a free will. They're going back and forth. And I never got involved in the debates. I did, I did like Dan Deardorff. I would just stir one side up and then stir the other side up and watch them go at it. <laughs> because I was an old debater anyway. I could have taken the Word of God and debated either perspective. And it's that kind of busy work that's going on in churches today that anesthetizes us to the, to the pain of not having the power of the filling of the Holy Spirit. My soul, if you're a Calvinist, then be persuaded of that and don't annoy the rest of us. If you're an Armenian, be persuaded in that, but get on with it. Go out and win somebody to Jesus Christ and don't annoy the rest of us. I'm tired of the little foolish busy work that's kept us occupied in the 20th century that's given us this sense of pseudo-sophistication, but we don't win anybody to Christ and the world is going to hell out there. Maybe somebody ought to wake up and say, perhaps it's time to go back to discover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we'll have the power to reach people for Jesus Christ and get off our busy work stump. I don't know. Could I be honest with you this morning and say, I don't really care if you call it the filling of the Holy Spirit or the baptism of the Holy Spirit. All I know is I want it. And there were four chapters that he had in his book, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, results of the baptism, the necessity of the baptism, and then a chapter that I'll never forget called obtaining the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Now, since I knew this morning I was going to preach to you on the filling of the Holy Spirit, I wanted to go back and reread that chapter. In Torrey's chapter on how to obtain the baptism of the filling of the Holy Spirit, he gave seven essentials. 
And I wanted to read those essentials, but I have to be honest with you. I only remember the last five. I had forgotten the first two. And there was a reason for that, because when I read that book, I was so hungry for what he was talking about, I quickly saw that I had settled the first two issues, and I moved on. But this morning, I have felt strangely moved, and I I should say that actually this week as I prepared for this sermon, I have felt strangely moved to talk to you about those first two essentials. Because given the state of American Christianity in the last hundred years, I'm deeply concerned that we need to be completely sure of ourselves in these first two areas. Toy said, before you can be filled with the Holy Spirit of God, the first essential is you must be saved. Salvation. Now on the surface, at first blush, we might be inclined to go to sleep on this one. If I were to ask this morning for a show of hands, how many of you know that you're saved? My guess is that just about nearly nearly every hand would go up in this place. I pray that is true, but most surely it is not true. In American Christianity, we have developed a sort of Christianity light. The idea is if you pray a prayer, you get insurance that you won't go to hell. But the idea, as I see it, and maybe I'm painting with a broad brush this morning, but when I look at American Christianity, my fear is, the idea is, if you pray a prayer, you get insurance that you won't go to hell, basically from that moment on, you can live any way you want to live, and the evidence of your salvation is that you go to church once a week and that you're a pretty nice person. What troubles me about that is that that modern concept of salvation bears little resemblance to Bible examples of salvation or even to the idea or concept of salvation in America 100 years ago. You read the stories of the great revivals and you will read of life transformations. You will read of people being changed, people going from being out-and-out sinners to out-and-out servants of Jesus Christ. All you have to do is go back and read the literature of a hundred years ago of revivalism in America, and you will see that. Not only will you see life transformations, you will see town and city transformations. Liquor stores, bars, taverns closing down, gambling interests closing down because their clientele had just dried up. And I hear the knock on that kind of thing. I hear modern evangelical scholars in the attempt to cover up our powerlessness. They say back then people were less educated. They were more emotional. They were more inclined to sensationalism. But we in our 20th century are more sophisticated. We are more educated. We are more intelligent today. And that kind of stuff that was in the 19th century and 18th century and the Great Awakening, it doesn't work on us because we are better students and we are more educated That's the answer I hear. But before we buy into that one, we might ought to read some of the sermons of a hundred years ago. You might ought to read some of the correspondence between average ordinary Christians in those so-called less educated than we are days. Listen to their vocabulary. Watch and read their writing skills. Listen to their basic intelligence. And you will soon discover which generation is less educated. No, it's not that we're smarter. Something in our culture has changed regarding salvation. We have something that resembles it, but there is not the power in it like there used to be. There are people today praying prayers of salvation, but there's no change of lifestyle. Friend, that's not the way it was a hundred years ago. Should we be surprised? 
Not if we know our Bibles. In the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes, But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. Now, there are three things that stand out to me from the text that we just read. The first thing that stands out to me is in the last days. I think that's where we are right now. So whatever we read about is going to happen in the last days. What happens in the last days? Number two, we have people that are living according to the flesh, the old self, we've been calling it on Sunday mornings. These are people that their lifestyles are characterized by the old nature. And then the third thing I see is that they have a form of godliness. They have something that resembles it, but no power. They got a form that says we know the right stuff. We are godly people. We go to church. We carry our Bibles. We listen to Christian radio. There is a form of godliness, but no power. Perhaps it's said as simply as it can be said in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, where the Bible says they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. Well, think with me. What's missing? What is it about our generation of Christianity that makes it different from the biblical model of Christianity or the way things were 100 years ago even here in America? What is missing in our generation? What is it that causes us to have a form of godliness but not the power? Well, if you go back to the text, we we saw people who have a form of godliness but they still live in the lifestyle of sin. That gives us a pretty good clue as to what's missing in the modern concept of salvation. Folks, the missing ingredient is repentance. Repentance. Today, people are told if they want to go to heaven, they just pray a prayer, and that's it. Just like if you go to buy a new car, you call your insurance agent and say, I I bought a new car, and the insurance agent says, no problem. And he puts, we used to call it a binder. He puts a temporary policy on that car. It says, okay, you can drive it off the parking lot. You're covered if you have an accident. And I think a lot of people walk into church, and that's basically the same thing. God, I want to be covered in case I have an accident. I want to make sure that I don't go to hell. And they pray a prayer. But there's more to it than that. It's true that we do pray to receive God's gift of salvation. But there are two inner components that are necessary before we are ready to pray that prayer. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19, Peter preaches about it. He says, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Repentance. Later, he would say it this way, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Those two things that must be in the heart before we are ready to pray the sinner's prayer are repentance and faith. What is repentance? I want to make sure that I'm very clear on this since I brought this point out that it's the missing ingredient in salvation. Repentance means very literally, the Greek words that comprise our word repentance mean a change of thinking. A change of thinking. Sin used to be bad, but now it used to be, it used to be good, but now it's bad. I used to like it, 
but I don't like it anymore. I used to be going down the wrong road. I don't want to go down that road anymore. I want to turn from my sin, and faith is turning to Jesus Christ. The problem with the average American Christian today, so-called, is that we want to accept Jesus Christ, but we don't want to turn from our old way of life. And you can't do that. That is impossible. There are those who dispute what I'm saying. They say that salvation is only a matter of faith. And I would be the first to say that, yes, indeed, salvation is truly a matter of faith. But what is our faith in? Our faith is in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. For what did Jesus atone? He atoned for our sins. So how then can we say that you can have faith to the exclusion of repentance? Because our very faith is in what Jesus did because of our sins. Perhaps I could say it this way and make it clear. You and I cannot choose our sins in Jesus too. Now, by repentance, I'm not saying that we promise to stop sinning and turn over a new leaf because that would be something done in our own strength. That's where faith comes in. See, we don't have the power to change our lives. But in salvation, we repent. We turn from the old way of life and we say, God, I don't want to go down that road anymore. I don't have the power to change, but I do want to turn and receive Jesus Christ. That's repentance. It's that desire to turn from the old way and to turn to Christ. And let us make no mistake about it that repentance is necessary. The Bible says in Mark, excuse me, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And by the way, even the rich man in hell understood the importance of repentance. Here is a guy who died and went to hell. Listen to what he said as he spoke to Abraham in Luke 16, 30. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. I mean, the people in hell, and maybe especially the people in hell, understand the importance of repentance. When Paul was preaching to the intelligentsia of his day, in the city of Athens, on Mars Hill, where the intellectuals collected and came to debate the great concepts of the day, it was there that Paul said this, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. I don't want to put doubt in anybody's mind today, but I will be very honest with you. I don't think modern preaching errs on that side. I think modern preaching errs on the side of trying to make people feel good, unfortunately, to the jeopardy of their own eternal souls. Preachers in an attempt to gain the accolades of their crowd and be politically correct are soft-soaping issues of sin. There, you just, in most churches today, you don't hear sins mentioned in specific. And when I talk to those guys, those preachers who are like that, I hear two answers above all the others. The first answer comes from the more theological tribe, which is to say, well, sins specific do not send people to hell. Overall, it is original sin. So therefore, I speak about sin in this generic sense that we're all sinners and I don't get specific. 
I don't know what you saw when we read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, but when I read through it, I saw some pretty specific things mentioned there. Amen? The Bible says, mark this, in the last days, people will be lovers themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, so on and so forth. I don't know what you see there. It looks pretty specific to me. Then I hear preachers say, well, I don't want to get too, too specific about sin because I, I just see it in a generic sense that we're all sinners theologically. The second thing that I hear from guys like that is they say to me, I preach a message of love. I preach a message of compassion. I don't want to make anyone feel bad about their sin. But I want to say something to you this morning. If repentance is necessary for salvation... How can a person repent if the man who stands behind a sacred desk does not have the courage to say what is sin and what is not sin? I have thought very carefully about what I am about to say, and I have weighed it so that I would not say it in rashness. But a preacher who does not preach against what the Bible calls sin. And I stress that because a lot of people have their own list. The list doesn't come from the Bible. But a preacher who does not preach against what the Bible calls sin is not kind. He is not compassionate. He is crueler than Charles Manson because what Charles Manson did affected only this life. When a preacher will not preach the truth, he is playing fast and loose with men and women, boys and girls, eternal souls. And it's not nice. And it's not compassionate. Somebody could say, well, pastor, I don't like the conviction that I feel at Messiah. I'm going to go someplace where they don't talk about sin. Well, chances are there are a dime a dozen. You can find a lot of them like that. But I am concerned because what I see today doesn't smack of Bible Christianity. It doesn't even smack of American Christianity a hundred years ago. We have a Christianity light. And you can call me old-fashioned if you want to, but I just believe a person is not born again until he or she has conviction of their own personal sinfulness. I'm a baby boomer, and I'm my generation works to music. So even when I'm working on a sermon, I have music going on in the background. Oddly enough, when I got to this point in the sermon, I paid attention to the music I was listening to, and the song I happened to be hearing at that moment was the old song, Amazing Grace. The pianist was just playing Amazing Grace. And it caused me to think for a moment, because see, I was, talking to, I was writing about this, before you can be saved, you have to have conviction of your own personal sinfulness. And I started thinking about the man who wrote that song. He was a slave trader in Africa. Now, I mean, is there anything lower? I mean, can you imagine anyone lower in the world than a slave trader? It was a brutal, cruel profession. Many of the slaves died because of their, their awful treatment. Buying and selling human beings like a piece of property. And only the lowest of the low were slave traders. Not only was he wicked in that regard, he was extremely immoral. But there came a day when John Newton came face to face with his own personal sinfulness 
and Jesus Christ, and he wrote that song that we love so much. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. An American president from the early part of the 20th century went to church and he heard that song. And he said, I don't like thinking of myself as a wretch. And he asked them to change the word. And so they changed it in various forms. You can read some copies of Amazing Grace that say, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a man like me or saved a soul like me. I actually heard a choir this week, a children's choir that sang that saved a child like me. So you'll hear songs that skirt around that. But that's 20th century stuff. That's not the kind of stuff that leads to salvation. Newton had it right in the first place. That saved a wretch like me. And I just don't believe a person is saved until he sees his sins, his ungodliness, the fact that he is a sinner. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter Peter preached and thousands of people were saved, do you remember what was in his sermon? He looked at that crowd who weeks before had clamored for Jesus' crucifixion and he said, you took the Son of God. I mean, he pointed his finger at them and said, you took the Son of God and you hung him on a tree. He was very specific about what they had done. To that, in Acts 2 verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Do you see what I'm saying? There is a conviction for sin that comes before repentance. Jesus told a story in Luke chapter 18. In verse 10, it said, Two men went to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And when Jesus concluded the story, he said, I tell you, this man went home saved, justified. Could I be so bold as to suggest that every one of us should take a moment right now to ask ourselves a question? Especially in the context of the kind of so-called Christianity light that we've dealt with today. Every one of us needs to stop for a moment and ask ourselves, have I ever come face to face with my own personal wickedness? Such an important question. Somebody could say, Pastor, why have you stressed conviction and repentance this morning instead of faith? Friend, the answer is because faith is irrelevant unless you are a sinner. This generic idea of just having a faith in God And just believing in Jesus Christ in a generic sense, that is not salvation. Salvation comes when we understand that we are sinners, that we are wretches. And it was because of our sin that the Son of God hung on a cross. And when we look to Him in faith, that's when salvation comes. But you know, of course, I'm preaching about the Holy Spirit. And that brings me to what I'm going to say this morning, and maybe this is the most controversial thing I'm going to say today, but I believe it's Bible. Someone will say, I'll be saved whenever I want to be saved. I'll get maybe somewhere down along the road. I'll deal with this. God's Holy Spirit is talking to me today uh, about my sinfulness, and I need to do something, but I'm not ready, and I'm, I'm going to do it later. Friend, let me tell you this morning that conviction, conviction is not something that you generate. It is something that the Holy Spirit generates. 
Conviction is a work of the Holy Spirit. So here's the thing. I can preach this morning, and you'll be listening to it. People will be downloading the sermon on the Internet. Some will be buying cassette tapes. Some will be listening to it on the radio around the world. Now here's the thing. I can be preaching this sermon, and you can be sitting right next to someone here today. The person sitting next to you may feel absolutely nothing at all. I can preach this sermon, and they're wondering who's playing football today and uh, what time we're going to get out of the service and and what we're going to have for lunch because there's nothing happening. Lights are out. But in your own personal soul, your own personal spirit right now, you may feel the pressing conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's because, see, here's the point. It's not a matter of intellectually dealing with this. It is something that is happening in the heart. It takes the Holy Spirit to convict you of sin. When Jesus was about to leave his disciples in the gospel of John chapter 16, he said when he comes, that's the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Now, what Jesus was saying is, here's the thing. When the Holy Spirit gets here, his his work is going to be conviction. What's he going to be convicting people about? Sin and then righteousness and judgment. Righteousness isn't our righteousness here. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And what he did for us on the cross. The judgment there, if you go on and read, it's the judgment that God performed on sin in Jesus Christ. So what happens when the Holy Spirit gets here? Think about this. This is marvelous. The Holy Spirit takes one finger and points at you and me, and he says, you are a sinner. You are a sinner. That's what he came to do. He came to convict the world of sin. And he points the finger and says, you are a sinner. And there are people who say, well, I don't like that. I don't want God to point his finger in my face and say, you are a sinner. But wait a minute. With one hand, he points to us and says, you are a sinner. But with the other hand, he points to a Roman cross on what changed the Son of God. And he says, there is the solution for your sin. And that's what this whole service is about today. Hear me this morning. If you're not saved yet, trying to be filled with the Holy Spirit will be like trying to encourage a dead man to draw a deep breath. That's the first thing that Tori talked about. He talked about salvation. The second thing he talked about, the second step, the second essential is believer's baptism. This is sometimes a divisive subject, but only if we don't let the Bible speak for itself. First thing we need to understand this morning about believers' baptism is that we are not baptized in order to be saved, but we are baptized because we have been saved. We know that baptism isn't part of salvation because of what we know about the thief on the cross. But those who had an opportunity in the Bible who were saved, they, were, they expressed a desire to follow the Lord in believers' baptism. In the book of Acts chapter 2 verse 41, the Bible says, They that gladly received his word were baptized. In Acts 16, 33, with the Philippian jailer, the Bible says after they were saved, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes, the jailer, and was baptized, he and all his, straightway immediately. And I know this morning we have people who've come from all kinds of backgrounds. There are people listening to me from all kinds of backgrounds. And there are all kinds of ideas about baptism. But friend, let me just tell you, from the Bible, believers' baptism comes only after salvation. It is a testimony. When a person is lowered beneath the water, it shows the death and the burial of Jesus Christ. When they're brought up out of the water, it shows the resurrection. 
It also shows that the old person that we used to be is now dead and there is a new person alive in Jesus Christ. It's a testimony of what has happened in your heart. Listen, friend, you can't, give a te- you can't be baptized any more than you can be saved uh, before you're saved any more than you could walk into a courtroom and give testimony about something you think is going to happen six weeks from now. And I know there are people here today and you've been saved, but you've not been scripturally baptized. Maybe you were baptized as a baby, but you've not been baptized after your salvation. Or maybe you had made a profession of faith and you went through believer's baptism, but later on you found out you were not truly born again and you were saved. You invited Jesus Christ into your heart. That's what happened with me. When I was six years old, I walked the aisle. Made a profession of faith, but I don't think I understood salvation at all. My dad baptized me, but it wasn't a real baptism because I wasn't giving testimony of something that had really happened. I was saved when I was eight years old. Didn't tell anybody about it, didn't talk about it. I knew I was genuinely born again at that point. The only problem was I hadn't been scripturally baptized. I cannot begin to tell you the great conviction that the Holy Spirit brought to my heart. And when I was 14 years old, I remember walking out of the aisle and walking to my dad and saying, Dad, I've been saved, but I've not been scripturally baptized. And someone could say, well, Pastor, this isn't an important issue. Why then in the Great Commission did our Lord say, go ye into all the world teaching, baptizing, and making disciples? Our Lord thought it was a significant issue. And I am just telling you what Tory said in his great book. He said, if you want to be filled with the Spirit, there is an order to this thing. First of all, you must be saved. And then scripturally baptized. Baptism is not part of your salvation. It's just what you do immediately after you've been saved. I want to go back to salvation as I close out this sermon this morning. Somebody could say, well, pastor, the Holy Spirit has dealt with me about my own sin. But I'm going to wait a while. I want to think about it for a while. You know, I'm worried that there are more people in hell who sat in services like you because they just said, I want to think about it for a while. Would you just reason with me for a moment to suggest that you and I can do what God instructs us to do in our own good time is the same thing as telling God that we think we are God. Because God is telling you what He wants you to do. And could I say something, please, in all love? In a few moments, we're going to have an invitation. That's the most important part of the day. And if you have to leave to go to work, I understand that. But if you're just leaving to to get out of the parking lot sooner or get to a restaurant, I would much rather you walk out on me because that's the Holy Spirit's time. And see, here's the thing. If you've got the idea that says you can do what God wants you to do when you get ready, What you are saying is, God, I know your instructions, but I'm the boss here. And when I get ready, I'll do what you want me to do. Church, it is a dangerous thing to put off the Holy Spirit, especially in the matter of salvation. Because here's the thing. The only way you can respond to God is if the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin. And if the Holy Spirit turns off the conviction, then you can set through a service just like this, and it won't mean a thing. I know the hour's late. It's 12.10, but I want to tell you two stories real quickly, and I'll be through. 
I believe there are two times in my life when I saw the Holy Spirit close out His work. Both of these people lived on for a while. I remember, long story short, when I was a senior in college, I was associate pastor of a church in Mansfield, Texas. It was a rural church, but Mansfield was growing up. A lot of subdivisions down there at that time. There were some really nice homes. And I remember going out. I used to work a lot with the young people in our church and college-age kids. And I remember going out on visitation with some of the college students. And we were just going door-to-door talking to people. We were in a nice neighborhood. A man in his early 30s was out working in his yard. And he called me up. That was interesting. He called me to come up and talk to him. I told him who I was. I said, I'm Mark Hoover. I'm the associate pastor of Southridge Baptist Temple here in Mansfield. And I came to talk to you. And I said, could I ask you, after the time of conversation, I said, could I ask you if you know for sure you're going to heaven? He said, no, I don't. I don't know that at all. And then I had my New Testament in my pocket. I said, well, would you allow me to take my Bible, my New Testament, and show you how you can be completely sure that you're going to heaven? He said, please, come on in. He invited me into his house. We sat there in his living room. I took my Bible and showed him how he could be saved. They got to the end. I said, would you like to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior tonight? And he he, he almost said yes. He almost framed the word yes. He said, you know, my wife's not here tonight. So would would you come back sometime when my wife is here? Well, I was disappointed naturally, but I said, okay, I'll come back. I came back, I think, a week or so later, maybe two weeks later. Sat in his home. This time his wife was there. He heard the gospel. He, it was, and I got to tell you, this is the nicest guy you ever saw in your life. The friendliest guy. And I wasn't even having to push at all. He was welcoming what I had to say, asking questions. His wife was asking questions. I got to the end of showing him how to be saved. I said, would you like to accept Jesus right now? And he thought for a moment. He said, you know, he said, I'm just not quite getting it yet. I'd like to wait a little bit more. But he asked me, he said, would you come back and talk to me about this again? And I said, yes. And that became a series of weeks as I would come back to him. Always the friendliest guy you ever saw. Always glad to see me. Always call me by my first name. But he just had something that stopped him. Something that stopped him. I was called to Houston, Texas to be associate pastor of a church there. Oddly enough, some of the college students in the church had gone to Fort Worth to go to college. And they went to the church that I'd come from. I said, would you go see this guy? I haven't been concerned about him. They went to see him. They called me on the phone the first week, and they said, Pastor, you're not going to believe this. That's the meanest guy we ever saw in our lives. My dad's not in the service this morning. He's teaching Sunday school. He was in the early service, but doubtless he would remember. Many, many years ago, we had vacation Bible school at Fair Park when I was on the staff there. A little girl was saved in our vacation Bible school. Gloriously saved. She's probably 10 or 12 years old. She asked us if we'd go see her mother. I said, I'd be glad to go see your mother. Took, took dad with me. We sat down in their little house, in the living room. I asked her about salvation. She said she had not been saved. I said, could I show you how you can be saved? Absolutely. Very glad, very anxious for me to do that. Went through the plan of salvation. I got to the moment where I said, would you trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? And she said, Yes. But at that split second, the phone rang and distracted her. She got up and answered the phone. When she came back to sit down, she said, you know, I think I'll wait on this. 
And she said, we, I asked her, I said, could we come back and talk to you about this again? Yes. And so I remember personally going back to the home several times and talking to her about salvation, but always had some kind of excuse, always had something to put me off. We had a bus route that we'd started in those days, and I rode with it as it got started. I remember we were picking up some kids about a block down from their house. A little boy got on the bus, and he said, did you hear about what, the ha- what happened last night? And a teenage kid had taken a gun and killed that woman. And I can't tell you how my spirit sunk because, see, I saw there was a day of opportunity. There was a day of grace. People think they can fiddle with God. People think they can put God off. But you can't. I'm preaching this today because I really believe. I mean, I got to tell you something. I felt strangely moved to bring this message today. I cannot begin to tell you how Satan has fought me physically to keep me from being here to preach this message. But I'm preaching because somebody needs it. I am terrified that we're in a generation of so-called Christianity that bears no resemblance to the Word of God. And people are going to wake up one day. Jesus talked about this. He said that there are going to be people in that day that are going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we worship in your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me because I never knew you. And he he said this, depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. There are people that have a form of godliness. But there's never been any turning from sin. Could I ask you today to search your own heart? When I talk about sin, I'm not just talking about people who are drug users and and prostitutes. I'm talking about the sin that's in our own lives. Has there ever been a point when you've looked in the mirror and seen a sinner and felt the Holy Spirit point to you and say, you are a sinner? Have you felt Him as He's pointed to the cross and said, there is your solution? Have you ever come to that point where you said, today is the day and I will have Jesus Christ to be my Savior? If you never have, I'm going to ask you to do the boldest thing you've ever done in your life, which is, as we have the invitation of the moment, to get out of your seat and make your way and meet me. I'll meet you right here. I will talk to you. There will be men and women who will take a Bible and you can settle this issue for once and for all and you can know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven. Would you stand with me, please? Father, I thank you for the day that you've given us, the word from your word. And now, Father, I ask in Jesus' name that you would work in our lives. Father, I don't know why your Holy Spirit has convicted me so strongly to preach this sermon today. But I know there were those in the early service who said that they needed this. And they made their profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, God, I would ask today in this service, if there's anyone here today who needs to get this settled, may they have the courage not to put it off, not to play God but to let you be God. In Jesus' name, 